Everybody, that's Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you can continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Let me take a moment to pray as we approach that part of the Bible. Loving Father God, please would you open our eyes so that we see Jesus. By your Holy Spirit, please would you fill us with faith in Christ. Please would you help us to see more of who Jesus is, to be more impressed with him, more amazed by him, and to put our trust in him fully. We pray that you would use this time now in your word to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, a video went viral of uh, a guy waking up from surgery. You get these videos every now and again of somebody really groggy from anaesthetic. And he rolls over on the bed and can't believe what he sees. He turns over to the person filming him and says, Whoa, you're the prettiest woman I've ever seen. Who are you? What's your name? And the woman filming says, my name's Candice, I'm your wife. (laughs) You're my wife? We're married? Wow, I hit the jackpot, he says. Now, it gets a little bit rude, so this isn't a recommendation of the video, but the guy just cannot believe his luck. As he comes around from the anesthetic and he's a little bit on another planet, he says, you're my wife? And the video is called Seeing Her for the First Time Again. Well, I think that's kind of the impact this passage is supposed to have on us. We're supposed to read these verses and say, is that the Jesus I know? Wow, I hit the jackpot. What an amazing saviour I've got. The whole of the letter of Colossians is incredibly encouraging. We saw how it started last week, full of thanks that the real truth about Christ was bearing fruit in people's lives. And so in many ways, it's a letter saying, keep going, keep up the good work, this is great. 
But it was also written to warn them, to warn us as well about people who might try to draw us away from Jesus, saying that we need more than Jesus, need to do more than just trust him, which is nonsense. So what did Paul do to warn them? Did he beat them over the head about how stupid that is? What are you thinking? No. He wrote a poem. He wrote a hymn of praise to Jesus, which is really what these verses are, to lift up Jesus for us to marvel at so that we see him for the first time again, if you like. See how amazing he is. And then faced with him, how wonderful he is, although we wouldn't dream of wanting more. And I hope that's the effect this passage has on us this evening as we see Jesus for the first time again. So what is he like? Where to begin? Well, let's start in verses 15 to 17, where we see the first thing we're told is that Christ is supreme over creation. Christ is supreme over creation. He is over everything, before everything, greater than everything. Verse 15 calls him the image of the invisible God. So he doesn't just tell us about God, he actually reveals to us the otherwise unknowable God. Images are a big thing, aren't they? Companies pay millions to come up with a logo, an image that represents them. So you see that and you go, oh yes, I know that. Kings and emperors had images. They couldn't be everywhere, especially before easy, fast travel. So they would send pictures of themselves, coins and statues, to represent them and symbolize their power. Well, in the Ten Commandments, God specifically tells us not to make an image of him because a statue or a painting or something like that would never be able to do him justice. And yet, there is an image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is God made visible and sent out to make him known. Christ, only Christ, fully shows us what God is like. So yes, people like us, we are made in God's image. We're made to be like him and represent him. But Jesus alone, we're told here, is the image, the ultimate human being. Everything humanity has failed to be, Jesus is. Muhammad Ali was wrong. Jesus is the greatest. Verse 15 says he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses misuse this verse. They'd go, firstborn, well, he must have been born. He's part of creation then, just the first part. We only need to read the next verse to see that's not true, don't we? He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. No, Jesus is the creator. To be the firstborn, it's not about being made. It's about status. In Jewish culture, the firstborn son was the VIP. The firstborn got the inheritance, all of it. So there's no need for a will, no need to divvy out who's getting what. Firstborn is getting all of it. There might be a few firstborns here who go, that sounds like a good idea. (laughs) That's the thirdborn. No, it's not. But anyway, the firstborn got all of it. 
In Psalm 89, God made promises about King David's offspring, Jesus, and he says, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So to be the firstborn over all creation is to say he is the most precious, the most important, the most powerful person there is, the one who inherits everything. Jesus is supreme over creation. A lot of people think that Jesus is just an interesting person, maybe, but no, he is supreme. Because for in him all things were created. And in case you don't know what all things means, he spells it out. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things, wherever, whatever, whoever, if it exists, Jesus made it. From the smallest creature to the furthest star, Jesus created it all. But it wasn't just made by him, it was made for him. See that at the end of verse 16, it was all made through, uh, through him and for him. It belongs to him. We belong to him. Along with everything you've ever seen or touched or heard or smelt or tasted or read about in a book. There is no such thing as secular. Everything belongs to Jesus. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's mine. The world is not random. It's got purpose because it has an owner. Everything in the world has been specifically made to his design. So how can we live in a world that was built for somebody? How can we be people built for somebody and not relate to him? Or use his things without asking how he would have us use them? No, everything needs to be related to the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, Christ is before all things. Not just chronologically, although that's true, he was before all things, but also in terms of, in order of importance and value and glory and honour. And on any list of good things, he is at the top. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. You know when you're going upstairs and you're carrying too many things and you don't quite have enough hands and you've got something under your chin and you're struggling and you're dropping it all, maybe that's just me, the way that many people live their lives, like kind of just desperately trying to hold everything in and not, you know, scrambling for control. Well, Jesus holds everything together. Nothing is too much for him. He's holding the universe together. He's the glue. He keeps atoms stuck together. He keeps planets in orbit. He makes sure time runs straight. He never drops anything. This is such an encouragement when things seem out of control or we feel like we're missing out or something is going wrong to say, no, this Jesus who you've come to know, who you've come to trust, he is none other than God himself, the maker, the ruler, the champion of everything. 
Don't underestimate him. Christ is supreme over creation. And then in verse 18, Paul slightly changes the subject. He isn't just the highest in creation. Christ is supreme over the new creation. He's supreme over the new creation. At first, verse 18 might seem like a bit of an anticlimax. So he's got all, he's head of all things, he holds everything together, blah, blah, blah. and he's head of the body, the church. Well, duh, of course he's head of the church, he's head of everything. You just said you own your house, you don't say, oh, and he also owns the downstairs loo. Like, well, I, I assumed he did, you just told me he owned everything. But that's not what he's doing, he's not just zooming in and saying he's in charge of everything, and also within that, there's church, that's one of the all things he rules. No, I think Paul's doing, he, he's turning from the creation of all things to the restoration of all things. And he's saying Jesus is supreme over that, over the new creation. Because we don't just underestimate Jesus, we seriously underrate the church. We really downplay what Jesus is doing through his people. But here we see it's just as stunning, if not more so, than what he's done in creation. You see what God is doing in verse 20? Through him, that's through Christ, he's reconciling to himself all things. This is talking about a new creation. Everything, the all things that he's made have gone wrong. The all things that he's made have turned their back on him. We have lived our lives revolving around ourselves instead of revolving around Jesus. And that sin has torn a rift through everything. It's ripped everything away from a right relationship with God. But Christ came to fix that. He's come to reconcile, to put back together what we've pulled apart. And so the all things that he made that have gone wrong, he's reconciling it. It's not enough to just deal with one person here or there. The whole world needs to be reconciled to him, brought back into relationship with him. Jesus is supreme over that, over this new creation. Second half of verse 18 says, He is the beginning. The, be the beginning of what? Well, the beginning of everything. The beginning of everything being made new. And he does that by being the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Often when we speak about Jesus' uh, resurrection, we're focusing on how unique it is. And that's right. But here is saying that it is the first of many, that one day all Christians will rise and death is going to have no place in the world that Jesus is making. Jesus' resurrection paves the way for the rest of us so that in everything Christ might have the supremacy. This idea of him being the firstborn from among the dead, the first fruits, the first one to be risen. It's sort of the idea of Easter morning when Christ bursts out of the tomb. It's the dawn of a new world. It's the start of everything being made new. And Jesus is at the head of the parade, if you like, with every other believer behind him, just waiting for our turn to kick open our coffins and, and be alive. But Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the first. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is supreme over all of that. 
verse 19 to 20 explain how that's possible. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. We saw last week, fullness was probably one of the buzzwords used by the false teachers and those trying to draw them away. The idea of fullness. You can have everything. You can be full, not like you are at the minute. You can be having the whole full package if you join our special group. But that's not how Paul uses the word. He uses the word to describe how Jesus is utterly God. All the fullness of God dwells in him. There's no extra bit we need to discover. There's no secret part of himself that God is hiding up his sleeve, reserved for the few. No, God fully dwells in Jesus, and Jesus shows us God fully. What a claim to make. What a claim to make about a person who had been executed not very long before this. Wouldn't dying get in the way of being supreme over everything? Well, not in the least. Uh, First of all, because he didn't stay dead, as we've seen. But also, this says that it was his death that starts to fix everything. It isn't enough that God became a man. The God-man has to die. Verse 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The way that God repairs the broken world is by sending Jesus to the cross. It's his blood that brings peace and reconciliation. Peace has come, but it's come at a huge cost. That the Christ who is supreme over creation entered into it, willingly bled for it, willingly died for it to bring peace. And it's Christ who does it all. His blood reconciles all things to God and makes him supreme over all. Now, that new creation is something to look forward to. I think that's a large part of the hope we heard last week about the hope stored up for you in heaven. We're looking forward to it. But it can be seen today. Verse 18, it can be seen because he is the head of the body, the church. The church is where you see it in action. The church is that new creation in miniature. The body in which Jesus is already the head. He's head of that little house church in Colossae would have got this letter first time. He's head of this church gathering tonight. He is head of every church across the world throughout the centuries. The new creation is on display right now. If we look around, it might not look like much yet, but the church is just the tip of a much bigger iceberg. More is coming. My grandparents were the first people on their street to get a telephone. So neighbours used to come round and have a look at it. I don't know who they would have phoned, but they would have come and had a look anyway. And they were one of the first with a TV as well. My grandpa was very proudly one of those people who would be an early adopter. You know, one of those people who gets involved in things before everybody else catches on. 
Well, in a sense, Christians are early adopters. We might not get the latest technology, but we're ahead of the game with Jesus. One day, everybody is going to acknowledge that Jesus is supreme. Church are the people who do that now. The people who already see Jesus now for who he is, whose hope is fixed on that day, who are living like it's already true. The new creation made possible by Jesus' death, begun in his resurrection, is on display in the church. Because it isn't just theory, this isn't just stuff that's happening to creation out there somewhere. It's something that has happened to us, which is where the passage heads next. That Christ has reconciled us. Everything so far in this passage has been huge. (laughs) He's the creator of everything, who is fixing everything and reconciling everything. Where do I fit into that? Where do I fit in? Well, if verses 15 to 20 are like one of those enormous maps, you know, sort you get a the you know, Chester Zoo or the, the, the Darwin Centre or something in Shrewsbury, you get the big map. Well, the next verse is, verse 21 onwards, is the blob saying, you are here. Here's where you fit into that. Here's how this relates to you. Because verse 21 says, you, for the first time, so he's doing all this thing on the global scale, and you, he tells our story, he gives our testimony, as it were, how we all came to know Jesus. He starts off with what we were like, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. This is a dreadful place to start. Being alienated, separated from God. We all know what it's like to feel alienated. It's a horrible thing when you feel like a stranger on the outside or when you've fallen out with somebody and there's awkwardness and there's friction where it used to be easy. That's how we all were with God. Alienated, cut off. And since everything was made by Jesus for Jesus, nothing works when we're cut off from him. Nothing makes sense when we're cut off from him. But we weren't just alienated the way maybe you might feel alienated from somebody you just pass in the street. I don't know you. You know, like Noel Coward said, uh, he was asked if he believed in God. He said, well, we've never been properly introduced. You know, God's just someone I've never been introduced to. That's not quite right because we chose to be alienated. We alienated ourselves. We were enemies in our minds, it says. The idea there is a hostile mindset. You know, if you're hostile to somebody... Whatever they want, whatever they have to say, it gets your back up. Whatever they, even if they don't, if they don't do something, and, uh, that, that hostility. We had hostility in our minds towards God, and we showed that by our evil behaviour. The things we did revealed our attitude to God. We did things He said not to do. We did whatever we wanted. We didn't do what was best for other people. The particular things that we may have done, they aren't the main problem. They were a sign of that bigger issue that we were alienated from God. We were hostile to God. Is that how you remember what it was like before you became a Christian? There might be some of us who would say, absolutely, that was me. I was so hostile to God. 
But there might be others of us who, who don't recognize this quite as easily. Perhaps you can't remember a time when you didn't know and love Jesus. And that's certainly the kind of testimony we hope all the kids here will grow up to have, to say, I can't remember being hostile to God. But whether we know it or not, this is the natural state of all of us. Perhaps you're not a Christian. Well, this describes you. There aren't very many people who openly admit to being hostile to God. Like the late uh, Christopher Hitchens, who said, I'm not even an atheist so much as I am an anti-theist. I hate him. That's, that's what the, isn't that the thing about the new atheism? There's two things with the new atheism. One, there is no God. Two, I hate him. So there are some people who would actively say, oh, yes, I am hostile. But most people would just say, no, I'm just not bothered. But if everything, including us, were made for Jesus, to be not bothered is a dreadful thing to be. Imagine if a child grows up and says, I'm not hostile to my parents, I just don't really care either way. Apathy is actually another sign of hostility. Now, I'm not trying to get at anybody who is not a Christian because this passage is not saying, how terrible are they? It's saying, it's pointing inwards and it's saying, how terrible were we? We're no better than anybody else. We were alienated. We were hostile. We were doing evil behavior because of that hostility in our minds. The only difference is verse 22, but now he has reconciled you. That's the only difference, that Christians are no longer alienated. Christ has reconciled us. Think of a long-lost family reunited. Two rival gangs now sat together as friends. East Germany, West Germany, knocking down the wall to be one country together. as reconciliation from hostility to peace. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And it has happened to us. We didn't do it for ourselves. He has reconciled you. It was all him. We didn't sit down to negotiate. He did everything to fix what we had broken. God did it by Christ's physical body through death. Once again, it was the death of Jesus, of Christ, our creator. God, fully dwelling in a physical body. It was him who sorted it out. It was his death, the punishment that our hostility deserved. And by taking our punishment, there can now be renewed friendship between us and God. Christ has reconciled us. He died and he didn't just die to get us off the hook and sort of sneak us in. Look at verse 22. It's amazing. He did this through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Isn't that spectacular? That you and I are made holy. That's what God is, set apart, absolutely pure. Without blemish. Nothing wrong with us at all. 
free from accusation. There's nothing anybody can say to disqualify us or get us kicked out. Reconciliation is going to culminate in Christ presenting us to God as perfect. When our track record was verse 21, alienated, enemies, evil behavior. And yet on the cross, Jesus was presented to God as a perfect sacrifice, like a lamb without blemish. And therefore, when we are in Christ, that's what we are too. Holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Christ has utterly reconciled us. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? Continue with Christ. Continue with Christ. That's the only logical thing. It's what verse 23 urges us to do. Everything he's said so far then says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Continue with Christ. You might have spotted that ominous word, if. Imagine I said, you can have £10 if... Well, you'd want to know how that sentence finished, wouldn't you? How much more with this? Jesus has reconciled us. We have this hope of being presented as perfect to God if we continue with Christ. This verse really gets to the heart of the letter of Colossians. Christ is all you need so stick with him. All of those wonderful things are yours if only you will continue. Established, firm, those are building words, good strong foundations, solid walls. When our kids were little, they used to like building towers, you know, the blocks sort of towers. Um, well, that's not actually true. They like knocking towers down and to knock them down, you sort of have to build them first. But there's that kind of thing. You build them up high and you demolish them. And that works because those little wooden building blocks are not established. They're not firm. A toddler can knock them over. Whereas a house, well, that's not so easy, is it? Our faith in Jesus is not a toy little tower that you can just sort of push over like that. It is rock solid. It is founded on the hope held out in the gospel. And it's that gospel hope we need to continue with. So that somebody could push us and pull us and say what they like, but we are not moving. Do not move, it says. Continue believing the gospel you first received. Not some new and improved version, not some extra bit of wisdom we heard later. Just the good news that we've already thought about, that Christ has reconciled us, that you have got it all, just continue. Now, there might be some of us here who've been panicking ever since we heard the word if. If we continue, oh my goodness. Well, what if I don't? Well, this isn't meant to unsettle us. I think it's meant to reassure us. I think this is more like saying, if you keep heading down this road, you'll get there. If you don't turn around, just keep driving straight, you can't miss it. With directions like that, you wouldn't be going, but what if I do a U-turn? No. If you go down there, you can't miss it. I'm on the right track. I don't have to do anything. I just stay where I am. I just head down this road. I will definitely make it. 
So, of course, if, if we currently are moving away from Jesus, then we should hear that if to pull us back on track. We really need to continue with Jesus. But the main message is encouraging. It's saying Christ is all you need. Continue with Christ. If somebody says, oh, I know a shortcut. Oh, why don't you go around here? No. If I continue, if I carry on, I will get to the destination. Some people were telling them they needed to move on to bigger and better things. Jesus is not enough, they would say. But read these verses and try and tell me I need more. More than Jesus. Are you serious? He created all things. He holds all things together. He is completely God. Then he willingly dies to put it all right again and rises from the dead as the Lord of everything. There couldn't be anybody or anything more than Jesus. And if we're told there's more that we need to do to get right with God, or more that we need to do to grow, well, how could there be more than all things reconciled? How could enemies have more than peace with God? How could sinners need more than being holy in His sight and without any blemish? And free from accusation. Christ is all that we need so we continue with him. I wonder what has struck you most this evening about Jesus as we've been looking at these verses. Talk about that. Encourage each other with that because it's as we hear about his greatness, about the fullness of our salvation, that's when we are a little bit less likely to move, a little bit less likely to budge. We're told to continue with Christ because he is supreme over creation, over new creation. He has reconciled us. And the more we think about that, doesn't that make us want to, to say like that person in the video, wow, we hit the jackpot. We've got it all. Let's pray that we would react like that. Father God, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. He is the greatest, the creator, the reconciler. He has done it all. Help us to continue with Christ. Help us not to move from the gospel. But instead, more and more, would Jesus hold the same place in our lives as he does in the universe, that in everything he might have the supremacy. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.